Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning, I do encourage you to open it to Daniel chapter 2. We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. That series is called Kingdoms in Conflict. And while you're locating Daniel chapter 2, let me just say that it has been almost a year since we began to feel the effects of COVID-19 here. Uh, I looked back and we put out our very first communication, a sort of formal church communication about COVID back on March 12th of last year. That's when we announced that we needed to suspend in-person gatherings because of a public health order and, and those sorts of things. And in that initial communication, what I said was that it was my hope that we would be back to normal operations by Easter Sunday. Now, obviously, I meant Easter Sunday 2021, right? Um, I didn't mean that, but even that now looks uh, like it's probably not going to happen. Predicting the future is a difficult task. But there is one thing I did get right about the current crisis. I told you at the very beginning that situations like this have a way of revealing things, revealing things about us. Crises like this one and like so many others of different shapes and sizes has a way of revealing who or what we trust in, who or what we look to for security, who or what we fear. And that's true of us on an individual level, and it's also true on a societal level. And so I was interested recently to read a New York Times article. The article was entitled, The Psychics Will See You Now. And the subhead to the article said, demand for their services has illuminated another kind of national health crisis. The article opens by saying this, a few weeks before the U.S. presidential election, Zulima Hormesh, a tarot reader in Los Angeles, chose a card to reflect the nation. It was the one that depicts a tall building struck by lightning with flames bursting from the top and occupants leaping to their deaths. The tower, she said, is the end of a system as we know it, the end of an era as we know it. Ms. Hormesh, the article tells us, has an intimate understanding of the ways this year or this past year has upended people's lives and sapped their optimism. She said she's peered into a large number of homes during virtual consultations and her clients tell her that they are eating more, they're drinking more, and that they are desperately lonely. Sometimes they mention even more troubling details and apparently the demand for these types of services has skyrocketed since last April. Yelp reports that searches for psychic services has doubled in this past year. The most insightful part of the article came in the form of comments from James Elcock, a professor at York University here in Canada. He spent his career looking at belief systems, debunking scientific studies of the paranormal. And Professor Elcock said he was unsurprised by the appeal of such services and and their rise in the midst of this time. He said, he's quoted as saying this, if you look throughout history, wherever there's been some sort of upheaval, some sort of collective anxiety in society, interest in psychics has shot up. He went on to say the reason is simple. 
people experience a lack of control and anxiety. We'd all like the pandemic to end. And without definitive answers from scientists, physicians, or elected officials, people are turning to more spurious sources. You can understand what he's saying. When we can't find the answer from the usual institutions, we start looking to alternative sources. We look for answers elsewhere. And maybe the question for us to think about is, who or what are we looking to? Or who or what are we looking for in the midst of our current situation? Where do we turn when we find ourselves living in troubled times? And that brings us to Daniel chapter 2. Now, I'll tell you up front that Daniel chapter 2 is a long chapter. It's 49 verses long, and many of those verses are long verses. So we're not going to read it all at once. We're going to kind of go through it in sections, in four sections or four chunks this morning. So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2. Here now the reading of God's word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream, or his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, if I were to put a heading or a title for this first section of Daniel chapter 2, I would call it the futility of pagan religion. Now, I know I just said the quiet part out loud. We don't always say it that bluntly, but we do believe that all human religions are a dead end. Now, this chapter starts in fascinating fashion. It starts by telling us that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, I think in one sense, we can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we've all had troubling dreams. We've all had those types of dreams that we wake up from in a cold sweat, and we're glad that it was just a dream. Or maybe you've had a recurring sort of dream, which seems to be the the thing that Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing. 
So maybe you know that from experience. Maybe you know it from the Phantom of the Opera. Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation, darkness wakes and stirs the imagination. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The darkness stirred his imagination and it wasn't pleasant at all. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams are so troubling that he calls in an assortment of his wise men. It says the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So that verse mentions four classes of individuals. There were the magicians or the diviners, depending on your translation, This was a a priestly class that specialized in interpreting ancient texts and applying them to the present day. The second group are identified as enchanters. These were men who were thought to have a special power to cast spells on Babylon's enemies. And you can see why the king might want someone like that in his employ. Thirdly, there were the sorcerers. This was a group of men who practiced necromancy. And since they were able to have relations or contact with the dead or the dead spirits, it was thought that maybe they could receive a message from the dead that would apply to King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they can pass on information to him. And then lastly, you had the Chaldeans, which is a general term for those who practiced some sort of astrology. They looked at the stars in the sky. They had charts and based on those charts and the appearance of the stars and the movement, they would be able to tell this is what the future holds. Here's what's going to happen in the world. So all of these individuals are assembled before the king and Nebuchadnezzar puts before them a task. I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he doesn't just want them to tell him the meaning of the dream. He actually wants them to tell them what it was that he had dreamt. Now, they, there's some back and forth between them, and they try to counter that assignment with a bit of a stall tactic. Well, look, just tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. Right? But if he told them the dream, they could basically tell him whatever they thought he wanted to hear. So he's not buying it. Now, we're not doing a character study on Nebuchadnezzar, but we do learn a couple things about him in this chapter. He seems insecure and paranoid like many leaders. He's afraid that those who are gathered around him are, you know, hoping to get rid of him in some way. They're speaking these lying and corrupting or corrupt words. But it also seems clear that he didn't get to his position because he was a fool. He knows that there are probably lots of officials, lots of experts sort of hanging around the king's court because they get a paycheck. And so he consults all of these officials, but he's not really sure if they're frauds or not. And the way to test to find out is to say, look, I had a dream. I want you to tell me both the dream and its meaning. And as it turns out, of course, they can't do what he's asking. No one can tell him his dream interpret it, and alleviate all his fears. And this, in fact, is where all human religions leave us. They eventually run into a dead end. Now, listen, I I know that this part of the message is out of step with our modern world and modern sensibilities. 
our culture would look at this scene with all of these various individuals with distinct religious practices gathered together. And we would say, oh, what a beautiful picture of diversity and religious inclusion. They've each got their own way of doing things. I mean, even if they can't actually help the king with his problem, they're not hurting anybody. And this is what happens when we see religious practices as being mainly therapeutic, right? As long as you feel better. Who cares if it's true or not? But there's a major flaw with that position. Now, long before Nebuchadnezzar, the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied in the north, prophesied about a coming day of reckoning for Babylon. Listen to what he said and how it speaks to the major issue plaguing this sort of religious pluralism. He said, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. The point that Isaiah is making is that all of those practices that you have trusted in, the charms, the enchantments, the sorceries, the stargazing, they will be of absolutely no use to you in the day of trouble. See, that's the futility of pagan religion. It cannot save us. There's an impressive sunken garden in front of the rare book library on the campus of Yale University. The garden is meant to depict the universe. A large pyramid stands in one corner symbolizing time. Another corner features a donut-shaped structure standing on its side. It signifies energy. In a third corner is a huge die perched on one tip as if ready to topple in one direction or another. You just don't know which one, and it is the symbol of chance. As he describes the garden or the sunken garden, Peter Moore says this. He says, this is the worldview of modern man. A self-existing universe consisting of energy, time, and chance. So where is the hope in that? There is none. None of those things can save you. We don't know which way the, the die is going to fall. Now, at least the Babylonian wise men were honest enough to admit their shortcomings. Verse 11 says, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And that brings us to a second thing we discover here. 
which is the mystery of God's sovereignty. This is what we see in the longest section of this chapter in verses 12 to 30. So let me read that for you. It says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out to the wise men who were about to be killed, or the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said this thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed before, or are, those, or are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of my wisdom, that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, obviously, I can't comment on all of the verses in this section, but there are a couple of things we ought to pay attention to. And maybe the first is just the fact of God's sovereignty. This is really the heart of Daniel's prayer in verses 20 to 23. And that prayer is really the theological center of this chapter. Listen again to verse 21, the part of Daniel's prayer. He says, speaking of God, he says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So Daniel affirms that God is sovereign over nations. He's the one that changes the seasons. He's also sovereign over the affairs of man. He's the one who sets up kings and removes them at his discretion. 
And God's sovereignty is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the idea that God is in control of all things can be a source of great comfort. This is the comfort that Daniel and the other exiles would have experienced. Look, God is on the throne. He's in control. It's the comfort that the later readers of Daniel's book would have experienced as they reflected on their own troubling or unsettling times. And it's the comfort that hopefully you and I experience in the midst of our time. But as Nebuchadnezzar was about to discover, God's sovereignty can also be terrifying. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what his dreams mean. He knows that they pertain to him and his kingdom in some way, and he has enough sense to know they pretend something dark. But he's about to find out how God's sovereignty will work itself out in his life. Now, part of what I think is so interesting about what we read here is the simple question of why God should reveal any of this to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. One of the dominant themes in this chapter is that God is the revealer of mysteries. Think about how it plays out in this chapter. In verse 11, the wise men of Babylon come to this conclusion. They say the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In Daniel's outburst of praise, he says this. He says, he gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And then here's what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in verses 27 and 28. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. God is a revealing God. He reveals himself. The words reveal, show, tell, make known appear 30 times in this chapter. And so we're obviously supposed to learn something about that. God reveals the specifics of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. But the interesting part of that is that it wasn't ultimately for Daniel's benefit. Whose benefit was it for? Whose benefit was Nebuchadnezzar's dream for? Well, verse 30 gives us the answer. Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. See, part of the mystery of God's sovereignty is that he chooses to reveal himself and his plan to this pagan king. So so what are we to make of that? Was all of this, the rising and the falling of all these kingdoms, part of God's elaborate plan to reach the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king? Well, I mean, he has some kind of response to Daniel's interpretation of the dream at the end of the chapter. In verse 47, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Now, I'm not sure that that's a genuine conversion, at least not yet. But it's clear that God is at work both on the macro level with all of these various kingdoms 
and on the micro level with Nebuchadnezzar's own heart. And this is something we ought to take comfort in. God is working in so many different ways in the world. So I've been using a, a book with our premarital couples this past year, or at least with a number of them. The book is called No Ordinary Marriage, Together for God's Glory. And I don't want to say anything about the book other than that it was sitting face down on my desk this week. And I just happened to read the endorsements on the back cover, which I hadn't read before. And one of those endorsements said, in reading this book, my wife and I found ourselves challenged and inspired to rely on God as the core of our marriage. Now, nothing earth shattering about that, except that the name attached to that endorsement was Alice Cooper, described here as singer, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, listen, I grew up listening to Alice Cooper. Andy told me that he grew up not being allowed to listen to Alice Cooper. So many of you are too young to know who Alice Cooper was. He is considered by many to be the godfather of shock rock. The albums he made in the 1980s are referred to as his blackout albums because he was blacked out all the time from so much alcohol and so, so, so many drugs. He can't remember making them. But somewhere along the way, in the 2000s, God got hold of his life. And from what I understand, Alice Cooper was actually instrumental in the stories of Dave Mustaine from Megadeth and Brian Welch from Korn coming to faith in Christ. Now, again, Tim and I are the only ones who appreciate those names. I get it. But I share all of that with you just to say you never know what God is up to. You never know whose heart he's working on. And sometimes our eyes are on the big picture and God is working in all these ways that we just can't detect. It's the mystery of God's sovereignty. Third thing we learn about here is the frailty of earthly kingdoms. So listen now to verses 31 to 45. This is the interpretation of the dream. Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the, you, the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes crushes, it shall crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So thank it's a really interesting dream. And thankfully, we are given the interpretation of the dream here. So we don't sort of have to guess what is all this about. The dream is about the succession of kingdoms that will follow after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Now, lots of ink has been spilled over the identity of the four kingdoms that are symbolized in this dream. We're going to revisit the four kingdoms when we get to chapter 7. Maybe I'll say a little bit more about their identity then. But for now, I'll just say that the traditional way of understanding the four kingdoms, I think, makes lots of sense. The traditional way to understand these four kingdoms is that the first kingdom is Babylon. That one's kind of a gimme since Daniel says, you're the head of gold to Nebuchadnezzar. The next kingdom represented by the the silver is probably Medo-Persia. And the kingdom that follows that, the bronze midsection and thighs, is probably uh, the the Grecian Empire, thought thought to be Greece. And then the final kingdom, the calves made of iron and the feet made of a mixture of iron and clay, is thought to be the Roman Empire. So I, I think it's good to have a basic handle on that, but not to get too bogged down in the details. In reality, Daniel barely says a word about the second and third kingdom, says a little bit more about the fourth kingdom. But there are lots of people who, who do lots of speculation about that fourth kingdom. They want to know about the, the toes, who, who those ten toes might represent. Lots of guesses as to maybe what's being symbolized in the inner marriage that's, that's described here. The mixture of iron and clay. Was this foreshadowing the mixing of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies during Alexander the Great's reign? Well, in reality, we're not actually told the answer to those questions. And those sorts of questions are interesting, but we shouldn't let them take away from what we're supposed to see is the major thrust of God's message to King Nebuchadnezzar. And by implication, his message for all of us as well. I think there's two main things that God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream. The first is what Daniel says in verses 37 and 38, where he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens. So, you know, as as he first starts to hear the interpretation of this dream, you can almost imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying, oh, oh, I'm the head of gold. I mean, that's, that's good, right? What Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand and actually won't understand until we get to chapter 4, is, which takes place many years later, is that it was God who actually gave him the position that he occupied as king over Babylon. It was God who gave into his hand all these other nations that he ruled over. And this is something we should remember as well. Everything we have comes to us from the gracious hand of of God. We did not earn it. Again, there's lots of talented people in the world. There's lots of gifted musicians, actors, brilliant intellects. No doubt they work hard at their crafts. But no one has as much 
to do with their success as they think they do. So biologists talk about the ecology of an organism. They remind us that the tallest oak in the forest is the tallest, not just because it grew from the hardiest acorn. It's the tallest because there were no other trees that happened to be blocking its sunlight. The soil around it happened to be deep and rich. No rabbit chewed through its bark when it was a sapling. No lumberjack cut it down before it matured. And these things are referred to as hidden advantages. That's why it grew so tall in the same way in our lives. There are lots of hidden advantages that we're just not aware of. And whatever we have, we have because the gracious, because our gracious God has allowed us to have it. He's the one that has given us the position, the stature that we might enjoy. That's the first thing God wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand. You got where you got to because I put you there. But the second thing God wants him to understand is found in verse 39. And here what Daniel says is, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Now that translation actually smooths out the word order. It's more jarring in the original Aramaic. A literal translation would be, but after you, another kingdom shall arise. And those words after you are a rebuke to men like Nebuchadnezzar. But they actually apply across the board to everyone. Dale Ralph Davis said it this way. He said, kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and tyrannies and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. See, there's always an after you. And that word of rebuke to Nebuchadnezzar ought to be a word of encouragement to us. Estonia is a small country on the eastern coast of the Baltic Sea. It was part of the Soviet Union from 1940 until 1991 when it regained its independence. Sometime after gaining independence, the town of Tartu in Estonia decided to auction off its statue of Vladimir Lenin, the Soviet leader who at one point terrorized the region. That statue once occupied a prominent place in the town square. There was a time when selling it off would have been unthinkable because it would have resulted in imprisonment and maybe even death. But see, Vladimir Lenin, this tyrannical leader, was subject to the same after you as Nebuchadnezzar. And in the end, his statue was auctioned off for $15,000 as part of a municipal fundraiser, this is the end of all earthly kings and rulers and kingdoms. That's the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. After you, another will arise. But I think that divine after you should also be a reminder to us. So I still remember something Pastor Carlin, my first boss in vocational ministry, said to me fairly early on in my employment. He said, if you want to know how much you will be missed when you're gone from, your, from this place, put your hand in a bucket of water and then pull it out. Right, there might be some ripples for a little while, but eventually that water will just go back to the way it was before. Now, he wasn't being harsh in saying that. He's just being realistic about the fact that there is always an after you, after you, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will arise. Even if it's an inferior kingdom, it's still a divine after you. And this is the fate that every one of us will meet. 
This is why we don't want to live building our little kingdoms. This is why we shouldn't live trying to store up treasures on earth that moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, we should be storing up our treasures in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. And that leads us to the final thing we learn about here, which is the incomparability of God's kingdom. And we see this both in the original description of the dream and in the interpretation of the dream. So here's the description in verses 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then here's the explanation of the dream in verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is it is certain and its interpretation is sure. So what is it that makes this final kingdom incomparable? Well, two things, really. The first is that it's a supernatural kingdom. It comes from a stone that was cut out by no human hand. And there's a deliberate contrast being made here between the statue or image that's made up of all these precious metals and what looks like an ordinary stone that turns out not to be an ordinary stone at all. Somehow this stone strikes the feet of this impressive figure and the whole thing crumbles. So what is that about? Well, the reason the stone can do that is because it's a supernatural stone. And the picture seems to be that this stone is almost like a seed. It comes up from the ground and it begins to crush and pulverize this statue. And then it grows into this mountain that fills the whole earth. There's a lot of imagery being employed here. But that imagery finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's what the stone is pointing to. This stone that's not cut out by human hands. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. At the end of a parable Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, he said this. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is Jesus talking about his own kingdom, his own reign and rule. He is the stone that is cut out, not from human hands. So it's a supernatural kingdom. The second thing that makes the kingdom of God incomparable is the fact that it's an eternal kingdom. Now, there's no video playback for us to kind of go back and and, and replay Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
But I imagine that that image that he saw was impressive at first. I mean, it says it was frightening. It would seem, it probably looked massive. And it would seem impressive, if not in size, for sure then in what it was made of. A head of gold, an upper body of silver, a midsection of bronze, legs of iron. How do you compete with that? And I'm sure in the first part of his dream, he looks at this thing and thinks, that is amazing. So just think about this image or statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw and think about it in comparison with some of the famous statues from around the world, all impressive in their own right. So the famous Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil is 38 meters tall. Statue of Liberty is 93 meters tall. It's the largest statue in North America. The tallest statue in the world is the Statue of Unity in India. It stands 182 meters tall. Each of those is impressive until you compare them with a mountain. Mount Everest is 8,848 meters tall. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was showing him. This is the difference between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this stone that appears insignificant at first, but eventually grows to this mountain that fills the whole earth. See, the kingdoms of man look impressive when they're compared to one another. But they look pathetic when compared to the kingdom of God. All of the earthly kingdoms will eventually pass away. That's what Daniel is telling us. But this kingdom, he says, will not be left to another people. In other words, the citizens of God's kingdom will enjoy this kingdom forever. It won't come and go like Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So how are we supposed to respond to this? I mean, this has been one of the themes that we've been talking about in our series so far. How do we respond to this kingdom, this incomparable kingdom that we are part of? Well, I think the way to respond is the response we read about in the book of Hebrews where it says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So let's worship the Lord, and let's do that by praying. God, we just acknowledge before you that some of the things that we think are so impressive are actually so insignificant in your sight. Lord, we thank you for your kingdom that you have invited us to be part of, that we get to share in this unshakable kingdom. And God, we want to respond with awe and with worship of your greatness. We thank you that you have revealed to us through your word and through Jesus what it means to be part of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we give you praise for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.